0: Looking in the bulletin, and I realized that it said, Today uh, I will be sharing the first annual meeting for the election of the church officers and board members. So, Pastor, I don't know, I, I didn't prepare that, so I'm sorry. I'll be sharing something else. Um, that wasn't something that I was notified early enough. Anyway, thank you so much for having us. Um, it was actually a short notice that we knew that we're coming the John Day. We Three weeks ago, we had no idea, no planning on coming to John Day. Um, But due to the political situation over there in Ukraine, uh, we were evacuated uh, three weeks ago on the 21st of February. 24th? Four weeks ago. Oh, man, time flies. Four weeks ago, and uh, like Greg was saying, we first went to Hungary, and we stayed with the Skinners, uh, who are living in Hungary, and then I was allowed to go back and, and be a part of the district assemblies that we had in Moscow and also in Kiev. Uh, but then instead of continuing on, uh, we decided to come back to the States and, and visit our families and, and kind of take this extra time that we have uh, to be with family and friends and, and kind of recharge before going back later this week. So it is awesome to be here, and I'm excited to speak uh, speak with you guys and share what the Lord has uh, on our hearts. Again, like Greg said, a lot of the political things we talked about last night and uh, pretty much for the last four months I've been trying to give updates, um, but I usually don't like to preach politics, and I don't like to preach about Uh, government things, and so that is not what I'm going to do this morning. This will be a political sermon, but it will be the most political sermon I ever preach. Um, Because this sermon is going to be about the government of the kingdom of heaven. And so if you have your Bibles out, uh, you can turn to to two two verses. Uh, Well, they're together. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now this is the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, and I believe that the author of Mark wrote the Gospel intelligently enough that he wrote it like a book, where there is a beginning, a middle, an end, and he wrote literary devices within this, this Gospel to, to help us tell a story because he, he, he turned the medium of Jesus' life and, and put it in a story format. And so at the beginning of his book, he did what all good writers do, and they summarize what the entire book is going to be about. So as we read, uh, let's, well, let's read. Now after John was delivered up, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near." Repent and believe in the gospel. This this quote, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel, is what Mark is saying. This is the entirety of Jesus' life. This is the entirety of what he's talking about. This is the gospel. This sums everything up, and then everything else is kind of explanatory and leads it all all together. That doesn't necessarily make sense, though. I mean, it's just one sentence. And, and, and how, how does this all fit together? Well, since November, I want to say, no, October of this last fall, uh, the political things started heating up in, in Ukraine and uh, people quickly began to, to to discuss politics and actually one of the, the downsides of, of a lot of political action going on is right now in Ukraine, uh, that's the only thing people talk about is politics and what's going on and what's on the news. And so my Russian and, and the political vocabulary has really gone up because I'm learning all these political terminologies. Um, but people started protesting, and it became a big deal, and, and my friends began going down to the center of the city and began protesting themselves, and we would watch on TV or we would watch the live stream online of people protesting and gathering together. And it reminded me of not so long ago we had the, the Occupy protests, even in this country, where people were, were protesting and Uh, people gathered in different cities all over the country, and it actually even spread to Europe. And we had all these protests. Uh, If you remember Arab Spring, the protests in the Middle East that happened not too long ago. And those protests changed the course of 20-some countries in the Middle East. These were not the first protests that have ever happened in the world. And they will not be the the last protests. In Jesus' time, there were protests going on. The Jews in Palestine were were living in what they thought was an oppressed situation. The Romans were a foreign people that had come in with a different language and a different culture and a different religion, and they were forcing the Jews to, to live in this, this Roman way. And being a Jew, it was very difficult because, you know, we all kind of have heard stories that the Romans and the Greeks, they like to be naked. Well, if you're a Jew, they can definitely see, if you're a male Jew, that you're Jewish because circumcision and all that stuff. And they would make fun of these Jewish men who are circumcised, and then they would make fun of of uh, the the things the jewish people would do because they only worshiped one god and that they only did these certain things and so the jews just hated these romans and so they protested against them and before jesus's time about a hundred years not not too much before jesus time uh, they actually rose up in arms against the romans and then again, after Jesus' times in 80 70, they rose up again against the Romans. But then the Romans said no more. And they crushed the, the, the protesters and even destroyed the temple, which was the most sacred piece of the most sacred building for the Jewish faith, crushing them comp- completely and forcing the Jewish people. Um, To disperse around the world because their center, what had held them in Palestine, was no longer there. Protests were real. And so this man named Jesus, this prophet, comes along and and he begins to, to preach the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. God's kingdom has come near. In the worldview, politi- in, in the in the world view that sounds awfully political, doesn't it? The kingdom of Rome is going to be no more because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's a message that many Jews heard, as they, they immediately thought this this political ideology that you know God has has finally decided to bring His kingdom and get rid the Romans from their 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 control over God's people. The the Romans are going to finally get their their comings or how, how do you say it in English? The, 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 huh? Come-up-ins. They're they're, they're finally going to get it because they've oppressed us so long. And then you hear Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom. The kingdom. Jesus constantly talks about this idea of the kingdom. And he speaks of these words in the kingdom and he uses parables um, which are essentially kind of made-up stories to help explain what the kingdom looks like. Because, you know, Jesus says it is a real kingdom, but it's not like any kingdom before it, and it's not like any kingdom after it. It's not like any earthly kingdom. Well, what do you mean? Well, in this kingdom, the first become last. In this kingdom, the last become first. In this kingdom, if a shepherd loses one sheep, he will leave the others and go looking for it. Who would do that? In this kingdom, the least of these will become the greatest. This kingdom is not like the other kingdoms. And so he, he uses parables, Jesus has used parables to help describe what this kingdom is. Now he says the kingdom of heaven has come near. And for, for those who uh, don't, or haven't studied uh, biblical Greek, um, you're missing out, by the way. I'm pretty sure that's what we're going to speak in heaven. Um, the verb that in English they usually translate as "come near" or "is at hand" in a lot of uh, other translations, um, it does have that sense of being of, of coming close. But the in Greek, Greek verbs are uh, very descriptive, and they're a little bit more descriptive than what we express in English. They have three well, maybe more than three, but they have um, at least three ways to explain something in the past tense. Okay? I'm not losing you, right? So, for example, the, the first way is a simple, and uh, they call it the aorist way, and, and what that describes is, is the action. It just focuses on the action. So, for example, in English, we might translate it as, I ate, there's no sense of time, there's no sense of of uh, how long I ate or when I ate. It's just there w- there was food and I ate it. Then they have the imperfect, which focuses more on the process of a, a past action, so in English, we might translate that as I was eating and uh, that has a little bit more of a of a of a process time to it you know that at some point you began then you know you might have taken you a little bit longer to eat and then you finally finally completed but I ate kind of focuses on I ate and then did something I was eating means that you you emphasize the process a little bit more and then they have the perfect and that's what this this verb is and the perfect in Greek It's not like the English perfect tense. Um, It describes an action in the past, but that has ongoing uh, effects to the present. That sounds confusing. But in English, we may translate that to as, I had eaten. And so, if you ask me, Joey, are you hungry? And I say, no, thank you, I had eaten. What does that mean? I ate, but the food that I put in my, my stomach is still digesting, and I'm not yet hungry. Because if, you know, oh, um, you know, you come home, and my wife says, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I ate. I'm hungry. If I said I I had eaten, and I'm hungry, then that, that, that just sounds weird to our ears, right? But there's this process, I had eaten means that we usually use this to describe the fact that we'd eaten, and the effect of eating affects us to this point. Now, what does this mean for the word to come, to come near? It doesn't mean that the kingdom of heaven came, and it was when Jesus was 2,000 years ago, and we just missed it because we're too young. Hi, I called you all young. Right. So when the offering plate comes, you know. Now, um, and it's not in a process. Well, it's, it's definitely not the future case, so it doesn't mean the kingdom of heaven is coming. So it's not going to happen in the future when we say, you know, the kingdom of heaven is, is not here. We have to wait. Revelation, you know, that's, that's in the future. We have to wait for this kingdom. No, that's not what it means. jesus was saying the kingdom of heaven has come near the kingdom of heaven has come and it is the effects of the kingdom are developing to even now in the present and so theologians like to come up with a, a fun phrase called here but not yet that's a little bit more simple here, but not yet. Repeat after me. Here, but not yet. So for example, many churches have a food bank, and we give food to the poor and the people in need, and yet there are still people who go hungry. Here, but not yet. We have youth group, we have kids programs, We try to uh, teach our kids to to be the best that they can, and yet in the world, kids still end up um, getting into alcohol or drugs, or worse, being uh, stolen and and sent to to child slavery or, or human trafficking or sometimes prostitution. Here and not yet. In Ukraine there 's a, 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 a ministry to drug and rehabilitation people for uh, for sorry there 's a rehabilitation ministry for drug and, and, and alcohol addicts addicts and and people are are going through this program and they are finding Christ and their lives are being changed and yet in in Russia and ukraine in Moldova. In, in the former Soviet Union, there are still many who are suffering with drug and alcohol addiction. The kingdom of heaven has come, but it's not yet fully here. At our workplaces, at our schools, we have friends. We have strong relationship with the people that live around us, and yet there are still some people who go home feeling lonely and that nobody cares for them. The kingdom is here, but not yet. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the gospel. So what is the gospel? It's a funny Christianese word. And for those who have grown up in the church um, or been in the church many years, it's, it's become a common, everyday use word. Well, maybe not everyday, but... But I grew up with this word gospel, and it kind of just... I mean, it's not an English word. It's, it's a borrowed word. So what does it mean? Well, in Greek... It comes from the word evangelia. That's where in English we get the word evangelize or or ev- evangelical. Okay, but that still doesn't help us. The word evangelia comes from the, the root of euangelios, which doesn't really help you, but in Greek that means, um, well, okay, angelias means messenger, and you is kind of a a prefix meaning happiness. So Euangelius would be a, a happy messenger. And they would use this word to describe somebody who brings good news. So for example, if there is a kingdom at war with another kingdom, and there is peace, then all of a sudden they start sending messengers out into the kingdom announcing that the war has ended and that peace has come. And usually these messengers ride, uh, well, um, if they're on horses they ride or some places they run, but they, they go as fast as they can and, and they're excited to proclaim the good news that there is no more war, that we have peace. Five months ago, my daughter was born and i was a yuangelias because i was excited to share the good news that my daughter was born actually my my in-laws were more excited than i was they they were on i mean pictures were on facebook faster than i could take off all the the hospital garbs but you could see it in their face they were excited yuangelias they are messengers of, of good news. And so therefore you get this word euangelion, meaning essentially we take the messenger of good news and we just say, well, this is, what they're sharing is a good news message. And so many modern translations then translate gospel as good news. It kind of makes sense, right? But do we treat this as good news? We're an evangelical church, which is derived from euangelia, which in the Bible they translate as the gospel. And yet sometimes we treat the gospel like a funeral dirge. Like in our lives, it has no longer become something good. And these are the words of Jesus, and I could argue. Um, well, I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna say. Sometimes it may be strange to think that Jesus would say a word like euangelias, especially because the gospel encapsulates who Jesus is. The gospel writers frequently use this. If you open up the Gospel of Mark, it says this is the Gospel of Jesus because that's good news, right? This is good news. Uh, the, The Messiah has come. A king has been born to us. But to have Jesus say Gospel, this is the good news, that must mean that this was good news for Jesus that he was an excited messenger, as excited as my in-laws were that my daughter was born and they were spreading the news, Jesus was excited to say, the kingdom of heaven has come near. That is good news. The kingdom of heaven has come, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel or the good news. So what other section am I missing? Repent. I'm not a, a big fan of the word repent. Um, recently, uh, my wife and I came across the term of a professional Christian. We're professional Christians. That means that we work in the church. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a thing we say, kind of keep us in check, you know. Where, where is our faith compared to what we do and, and how do we hold up? And so, I mean, we live and breathe the church. We work in the church and, and um, we kind of have to check ourselves. But the word repent is still something that I don't like to say all the time. And it seems that the word repent often focuses on the sinful act you have done something sinful, you have sinned, therefore repent. And when we begin to think this way, people begin to use this word too much. They, they begin to repent too easily. They would do something wrong or do something bad and say, oh, I'm sorry. And then do something wrong and say, oh, I'm sorry. But the word repent, again, let's go to Greek because that's a fun language. It comes from two root, roots, uh, two words in, in Greek. It comes from change and mind. And so the word repent, essentially in Greek, means to change your mind. To change your mind, or, or or sometimes life, and how to repent does not focus on the sinful act, but focuses instead on the change. And it's not just repenting as I'm 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 sinning, so I'm just going to change this way. No, it's the change completely, a hundred and eighty degree turnaround and go towards God. Because that's really what repent should be. That's really when when we challenge each other as a church to repent. It shouldn't be focused on the sin that we're committing, but it should be focused on God. Repent is a plea to change your life and go to God. The kingdom of heaven, God's reign has come. It is, it is in, on earth, with us change what you're doing and go to god because that's where god is run to god and believe Well, in english believe is associated with the word belief, right? And therefore, um, it's easy to, to be very metaphysical when we think of a belief, very subjective. I believe in something. It is my belief. Um, therefore, we've, we've kind of separated it from, from uh, sometimes we, we separate it from an actual um, a factual thing, It could be factual, it could not be, but our belief is is subject. But in Greek, you, you can't do that, because in Greek, the word belief is rooted in the word for truth. So when a Greek person says, I believe, they are essentially saying, that is true. This is good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. But are we living it as if we believe it is true? Does it change your life so much because you've encountered truth? Or is it just a belief that you have on on Sunday mornings or in your small group or that you just keep to yourself? No, we can't just keep our beliefs in and it's not just speaking our beliefs, it's living your beliefs because this is a truth that we can't ignore and we must live. So. The time is fulfilled. It's happening. The reign of God, the and maybe in English and modern words, the republic of God, the, 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 the government of heaven has come among us. It's, it's, it's come and it's growing and, and building up. Turn from the way that you're, you have been living. Turn towards God with everything you have because, and, and live it because it's true. That's essentially what Jesus is saying in, these, in, this, in this little sentence that often we just pass right by and continue on his story. Now, I want to add to this a little bit more. I said in Mark, this is how Mark kind of summarized his gospel. Can you, can you understand how this is a summary of the gospel of Mark? And Luke, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and these both were written at the times of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke decides to tell us a story instead. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus uh, has gone through, he's been baptized, he's gone through his temptation in the wilderness, and he returns to his home synagogue in Nazareth. um, And they give him the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it up, and he begins to read. And he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim to release, release to the captives and regaining the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's how Luke summarizes Jesus' gospel, Jesus' good news. To proclaim that the kingdom of heaven has come near to the poor to proclaim release to captives and regaining sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. It was very, very apparent um, when I was preaching this message in Ukraine that probably half the church, half the group that I was preaching to had at least been down at the protests. And everybody's life was affected by it. And in Ukraine, it was amazing to see how, um, how, how much they were willing to give for what they believed in, for what they were fighting for. In December, some nights, it got to 15, to 16 degrees below zero Celsius, which is, like, colder than Fahrenheit. But people were still outside. They were still camping out downtown in tents, around big drums, fire drums. They um, People who couldn't go down because of work or other re- reasons uh, generally would buy a whole bunch of food. And, and while this was beginning, it was easy to see or common to see someone buying uh, like 10 loaves of bread and, and 60 eggs or, you know, like 10 things of eggs, I don't know. Um, and, and going through the shopping line, because they were making food and sandwiches and soups, and they would send those down and 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 hand those out to the protesters who were down in the middle of the city. And so, if the people who were in, who were downtown, you know, they were they were protesters who were giving up their time, their work, and they were they were camping out in the cold, and not being able to shower, not use the restroom easily. And then there were others who are trying to support them financially with, with food, etc. And if, if people are willing to do that, thousands of people are willing to do that for an earthly kingdom, how much more are we willing to do this for the kingdom of heaven? I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not putting a, a morality on, on supporting one's country or one's, where one's situation is. But if people are willing to do this, to, to, to fight for what they believe in, for earthly things, for things like their government, for, for their, their house, their rights, their family, how much more are we to fight for the kingdom of heaven? To live for the kingdom of heaven. Where does our allegiance truly lie? Now, after I close today, I, I hope, well, this doesn't necessarily mean that we should all go out and start passing out more tracts or knocking on people's doors and saying, hi. Um, do you know about Jesus Christ or something like that? that? That has a place. But what I'm saying is, how much more are we to live for the kingdom of God? Well, what does this look like? This is the kingdom where we proclaim good news to people who need to hear good news in their lives. This is a kingdom where we We proclaim freedom and release for those who are captive. Those who are captive in addiction. Those who are captive in in financial problems. Those who are captive in abusive families. Those who are captive in their own just bad choices. We are to proclaim sight to the blind. Healing. That our God is is a great God who, who watches over each other and has given us resources to watch over ourselves and to give, not just in the church, but to our community, for community health, for the world health. And we as a church are also supposed to set people free set people free from oppressive governments, set people free from illness, set people free from addiction, set people free from from bad relationships. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's what evangelism looks like. That is the good news. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus comes along and says, Guys, the kingdom has come. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, turn from your old ways towards God, believe in this wonderful message and believe in the good news. Let's pray together.